for chapter 1. Ezra is one of those books out of the Bible that doesn't get preached out of a whole lot. Um, But it is a fascinating book. And if you don't know a lot about the book, you're going to walk away tonight going, wow, there are some spectacular things there. I will say this, there will be something I'm going to show you um, toward the beginning of the message here, once we get down to the outline, that uh, does does as much to validate the Bible as being true as anything that, uh, uh, that, that could be done. And something that historians really, if they're honest with themselves, just speaks tr- to uh, how powerful God is and shows just how much God can flex his muscles. Ezra chapter 1, let's stand for the reading of God's word this evening. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 of the beginning of the book here. It says, They are now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is... In Judea, Judah. And the title this evening of our Bible study is this, Going Home, Going Home. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray tonight you'd help us to be alert and attentive, and Lord, that uh, your word would uh, resonate in our hearts, and Lord, that we would take from this exactly what you have for us. And I pray that tonight uh, there would be just a little bit of recharging the spiritual battery, God, that uh, the world seems to uh, drain on us throughout the week, and Lord, um, uh, the spiritual assault we face outside of the walls of this place. And Lord, I pray that tonight would be a little bit of uh, of comfort, of exhortation, and Lord, just a reminder of how good you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The people of God, um, beginning of Ezra, were finishing up their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Uh, we've gone into this, and we'll get more into it in a minute, but... Uh, the reason why they were in captivity is because God was tired of their wickedness, their, their, their idolatry. And after uh, several kings in the northern kingdom, the Assyrians came and led them away. And then in the southern kingdom, they had a little bit uh, better run. They had more kings serving God than the, the northern kingdom did. But nonetheless, the, um, the, the southern kingdom of Judah as well had to deal with their wickedness. And eventually the Babylonians came and took them away into captivity. And that's where we get all the stories about Daniel and the lion's den and the three Hebrew boys and uh, the writing of the hand on the wall and Daniel coming in and inter- interpreting it. Um, uh, Daniel and all the different stories there that are fascinating that we hear, we hear in Sunday school and even preached on from time to time. Uh, but uh, that whole book took place in Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. And then the day came where it was time for them to began going home. Cyrus became king and he felt moved in his spirit by God uh, to let the people go back to their homeland and while still under Persian rule, nonetheless to have somewhat of their own uh, civil government while it fell in line and underneath the Persian government and they were allowed to even build a temple. God's people went home in four different groups. The first group uh, went home under the leadership of a man of Shesh Bezar. The second group went home under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua. These two men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were the contractors of this temple, the one that would follow Solomon's temple. And then Ezra took the third group home, and then Nehemiah was the last one to go, and we'll look at him more next week. A couple of things I want you to take out of the message by way of introduction, and we'll drill these home uh, throughout the sermon and then at the end of the message. But the first thing I want you to see is that God is a sovereign God. God is a sovereign God. You say, what does that mean? If you're new to the whole church thing and you don't know what sovereign means, it means that God allows everything that happens, both good and bad, and He has a way of bringing it around to fulfill His will anyway. His will anyway. It doesn't matter what it is. You say, well, this happened to me when I was a child, or uh, this happened to me in, in my adult life, and I don't understand how this sin has altered my life in such a negative way, and how in the world could God spin that into something good? And I will say this, God always, always, always wins. He always wins. 
He's sovereign. And that's really what makes Him so special. That's what makes Him so special. Is that He's able to allow us to live our lives however we want, but yet He's still able to take it all and bring it around to something great and for good. And a classic example of this that you hear used oftentimes is uh, a Joseph. Uh, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they hated him, but God used that selling of Joseph into save, slavery to save the whole world from a, um, a drought and for, from a, um, a famine. And God had a way of taking their evil and turning it into something good. In fact, you might remember at the end of Joseph's, uh, the end of the book of Genesis there, Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, you meant it unto evil, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And so, yeah, you had evil intent in your heart. You were sinning while you were doing it, but God took, uh, did it for good. Was the Israelites being taken into Babylon by a king who was wicked in his heart, was that a good thing or a bad thing? I would say... Uh, that it was both. It was bad in the sense that there was evil in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar when they were captured and brought in, but God had a way of using that to become something good. By the way, uh, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar even at some point got saved along the way. Uh, God used some events in, in his life and through the testimony, and that's a whole other Bible study, but uh, there in that story, he goes from respecting uh, the God of the Israelites to believing in Him to supremely believing in Him. And so God can take uh, bad and turn it into something good. You might be here tonight going through a major, major upheaval. You might be here tonight and you have not let go of events of the past. And maybe you wonder how God could allow those things to happen to you. And I'm here to tell you that while God never endorses sin, God is sovereign and He can take others' sins against us and He can turn it into something beautiful in our lives if we'll let Him. I'll even take it a step beyond that. God has a way of taking our past sins and turning them into something beautiful if we allow His grace to do that. The second application I want you to take from the Bible study tonight is this, is that God expects purity. God expects purity. If you're taking notes and you want to write this down, and again, I encourage you to do that on the back of your prayer bulletin there, you have the outline for the message tonight. I'd encourage you to write these six words down at the top of your outline there. God is sovereign. You're going back over the message. You can uh, uh, look at look at and as we look at this tonight, you'll see the sovereignty of God throughout. And the second thing, really, the theme you'll pull out of the Bible study tonight is that God expects purity. He wants your heart to be pure above all else. He doesn't like it when you allow your heart and your soul to be contaminated. I'm reminded of some boys who came home from. Uh, hanging out with their friends on a summer day, and they ran inside and they said to their dad, they said, Dad, there's this new movie at the theater, and we want to go watch it. Our friends are going, and, and we want to go watch it. And the dad said, okay, all right, okay. Uh, well, uh, is, there any, uh, is there any cursing in the movie? And the boy said, well, you know, there's a couple of words, and not much, maybe just one or two words, and, and they're not the really, really bad cuss words, you know, because there's tears of cuss words, right, in the, in the eyes of a teenager. And, 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 you know, they're just, and you know what, we, we know where they're at, well, we can even plug our ears, and, and we'll try to not even listen to them, and, and dad, please, can we go, all our buddies are going, we want to go, and the dad said, well, why don't you give me a little bit of time, and let me think about it, and, and come back, uh, come back in about an hour or so, and, and I'll let you know uh, my answer. And so while the boys were gone, the dad went in the kitchen and he made brownies for the boys. And they were so excited. They came inside and he had the brownies on a plate and sitting there. And, and they said, uh, uh, Dad, have you made up your mind? He said, well, i got some brownies here for you and I want you to have some brownies. And uh, the boys reached out and gave me, oh, but hold on. Before you grab the brownies, I think it's fair to tell you that I went out in the yard uh, and I picked up behind our dog uh, some of uh, his droppings. And uh, just just two. Just two. And I mixed those into the batter. And the boys began to back away. They said, what's the matter? Well, go ahead and eat them. There's just two in there. Just two. And the boys said, no, thank you, Dad. Point taken. Point understood. Listen, what we watch, what we listen to, who we interact with, what we endorse in our mind when other people are talking to us, uh, what we uh, uh, what we laugh at. Listen, that matters. And God expects purity from the Christian. Christian, it is okay for a boat to be in water. It is dangerous for the water to get inside the boat. It's okay for you to be in the world. It's dangerous for the world to be inside of you. 
contaminates you. And God, when He looks down from heaven and He sees you, does He see a contaminated Christian? God expects purity. Number one of the outline tonight, notice this, the captivity of Judah. Now, you might wonder how we're going in the Bible from the captivity, or rather, last week when we left the Bible study, Israel had kings, Judah had kings, and now we're all the way on the back side of Babylon. Turn with me over to, just it should just be a, a page to the left there, Second Chronicles chapter 36, and let's try to get caught up here. Second Chronicles chapter 36, and look at verse number 13. The Bible says there, and he, and, uh, this is speaking of Zedekiah, the last king of uh, Judah there. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning into the Lord God of Israel. Uh, skip down with me to, uh, down to verse number 17. It says, Therefore he, God, brought upon them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or made an old, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the, uh, of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of the princes, uh, uh, all of these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the places thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah unto the land uh, had uh, enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. So the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, they swoop in and they capture up the Israelites, the, the Judeans, and they take them away to Babylon. There's a remnant that's left and Zedekiah is put in charge. And he's told, Zedekiah, you will run this government underneath my rule. And if you don't, I will destroy you. And, and he made Zedekiah promise. And the Bible tells us there in verse 13 that he didn't. Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon, which was foolish because they had been diminished to almost nothing, and Babylon was in its uh, was in its prime there. And so uh, the Chaldeans came in and they thumped Zedekiah off the throne. They took all the vessels of the temple away back to Babylon and had them stored away. And then uh, history tells us that they blew up the temple, Solomon's temple. They completely annihilated the temple. Uh, and there's actually some pretty fascinating things uh, that you can read about how that was done, how they went about doing that. But it was completely annihilated. It was completely destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And the children of Israel were carried away captive into Babylon for 70 years. Now, you might ask, why 70 years? The Bible actually tells us why. Right there. It said, until the land's Sabbaths were fulfilled. If you go back into the Pentateuch, the children of Israel were commanded to allow the land to rest once at one year out of every seven years. And for 490 years, the Israelites had ignored that command. And God said, okay, you're going to ignore my command. I'm going to give my land its Sabbaths back. Until all those Sabbaths have been paid back, you will stay in captivity. And those people may have thought, oh, it's no big deal that we're breaking this silly little rule about not resting the land. And God says, none of my rules are silly. Seventy years they were in captivity while those seven divided by 490, 70 years were restored back to the land they laid in captivity. The captivity of Judah. And, and so that's where we find the Israelites here in the book of Ezra. Uh, they're nearing the end. They're coming to the end of that 70 years. And now God is going to allow them to return back to their land. Number two, we see the calling of Cyrus. The calling of Cyrus. Now, uh, this will uh, fascinate you greatly if you really enjoy uh, uh, things about the Bible or validating the Bible. This is something you can show to a scorner or someone who, who just says the book is, uh, the Bible is just a, bo- a book of a bunch of people's opinions. This right here, if someone really is curious, will blow them away. Hold your place in Ezra chapter 1 and turn over to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to look here uh, at two different verses in Isaiah 45. And really, you need to turn over there so you can see this with your own eyes if you have your own Bible. Otherwise, you're going to say, Pastor, I didn't see it with my own eyes, so I don't believe it. So I'm telling you, 
Turn over there and look at it so you can believe it with your own eyes, okay? Look at Isaiah 45, verse 1. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. Notice to who this is addressed to. To Cyrus. To Cyrus. Whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loosen the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Look down at verse 13. Look down at verse 13. Isaiah 45, verse 13. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not the price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, you might be sitting there saying, okay, so God commanded Cyrus to let his people go, and Cyrus let his people go. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Isaiah wrote this chapter... 200 years before Cyrus was ever born. God called Cyrus out by name 200 years before he would even be born. He said, Cyrus, you're going to let my people go and you're going to help them rebuild their city. Look back at verse 1. We won't read it, but there you find the idea that God was going to raise up Cyrus to overthrow kingdoms. Cyrus was the one who overthrew Babylon, the great Babylon. You might remember the writing of the hand on the wall. That was Cyrus that came in under, under, uh, through the water canal. They'd stopped up the water and under the canal they came and they overthrew Babylon without ever even killing a person. The, the government just laid down and I think probably because of the uh, writing of the hand on the wall, they were so terrified and, and the Persian gov- uh, government totally overthrew the Babylonian government and God allowed Cyrus to do this. Now, Several years ago, I was watching one of these Christian films. It was really well put together. It was about the life of uh, Daniel, actually. And uh, again, a lot of this is built on uh, happenstance or maybe it happened this way. The Bible doesn't say it happened this way, but I will say this is indeed possible. We know that Daniel served in the, in the uh, government there in Babylon and that even served under uh, Cyrus and then under Darius who would come behind Cyrus. We know that he was involved in, 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 the, in those governments. And the... Um, the way that the movie has it set up, and, and I'm just going to share this with you because to me I, I find it fascinating. Um, Daniel was out on the outskirts of Babylon praying, and Cyrus comes riding up, and they, they grab Daniel and bring him into the tent where Cyrus is. And Daniel sits there and he tells Cyrus, he says, uh, uh, he, he learns his name, and he, and he shares with him this truth out of Isaiah 45. He says, Cyrus, God has called you by name before you were even born. We don't know how Cyrus found that out. We don't know if it was Daniel or some other way. But it very possibly could have been Daniel because Daniel was involved in the governments there. Uh, But nonetheless, someone who knew the Bible shared this with Cyrus that, Cyrus, God knew you were going to be born. God knew what your mother was going to name you. And and God told you that when you become the king of all the nations that you were to let my people go free and rebuild those cities. Now, liberal theologians... Uh, back before the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered, they would try to discount this. They would say things such as, well, there were multiple Isaiahs who wrote multiple works, and these were compiled into one book. And so this Isaiah lived during Cyrus's era. The problem with that was when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, come to find out the entire book of Isaiah was written by one guy. And he did live 200 years before Cyrus lived. And so that whole... Discounting the Bible totally went out the window. I would say this evening that this miracle by itself validates the entire Bible. The fact that God called Cyrus out by name 200 years before he was even born. I guess the best I could do to describe this is if Ben Franklin had written uh, in uh, his uh, one of his writings and called out, say, George Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump by name and said, when you're the president, you're to do this 230 years prior. Everyone would be like, what are you doing? And then it comes to pass. And so God used Isaiah uh, to call him out by name. So number one, we see the captivity of, captivity of Judah. Number two, we see God flexing his muscles, the calling of Cyrus. God allowed the people of Israel to be carried away, or rather the nation of Judah to be carried away into captivity so that Darius could come in, or rather Cyrus could come in and set them free. I'll tell you quickly before we move on to number three. There's a, a, there's a cylinder uh, that was dug up, uh, one of these pillars or posts 
that was dug up in an archaeological dig where Cyrus actually has inscribed on there that God had commanded him to do this. Even more fascinating. Now, this is buried in the news. It's not reported on uh, because obviously they don't want to validate the Bible because that throws all of their, their secular theories out the window. But it's a fascinating study if you want to take the time to do it. And by the way, you've got to really be careful when you're reading about that as well because Satan online has tried to even discount all of that. Number three, we see the complications of the rebuild. The complications of the rebuild. So, uh, as, or rather, uh, Cyrus puts together a coalition to send these Israelites back to Judah, these Jews back to Judah, so that they can begin to rebuild their temple, they can rebuild their city, and uh, he, he puts all this together and he sends them out there to do this, and letter A we see the adversaries, the adversaries. Look down with me at Ezra chapter 4 and verse number 1. Anytime you start to try to do something big and great for God, you can be guaranteed there are going to be adversaries there to oppose you and keep you from doing that for the Lord. We saw uh, on the screen just a few minutes ago Brother Baker's presentation, they faced some adversity, didn't they? And it didn't necessarily come in the form of people, it came in the form of a storm, but God has a way of using adversity or even adversaries to get us further along and to purify our heart before Him. Look down at verse 1 of Ezra 4. The Bible says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel, and to the chief of the fathers, and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek uh, your God, as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of uh, Asher, uh, or Asur rather, which uh, uh, brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and the rest of the chief of the, of the fathers of Israel, said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as... King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, uh, king of Persia. So uh, these ad- adversaries come in and first they try to slip in and, and butter them up and, and, and come up right next to them and say, hey, we, we, we believe in your God and we want to help. Help you build this temple. We want to help you uh, in this rebuild. And uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Joshua saw right through that, and they said, "No, you're not. You're not here to help us. You're a bunch of lying, uh, conniving thieves. Get out of here." And uh, and that really upset them. So what did they do? They they went out and they hired counselors. The Bible says against them to frustrate them. And this would be uh, them coming in and maybe throwing stones or not making threats and, and doing things to just slow down the rebuilding of the temple. They did not want the temple built, and so that there were adversaries there. Let me just say tonight that if you want to do something great for God, you're going to face some adversity along the way. You absolutely will. You want to take a stand in your family for what's right, you're going to be looked at as radical and over the top and extreme and you'll be labeled a, a lunatic. You'll be told you're part of a cult. Uh, and I do know there are cults out there. Uh, uh, trust me, I know there are cults out there. But I can tell you tonight that if, if we're a cult, then anyone who follows the Bible exactly how it's taught, then that would make us a cult. Let me just define cult for you really quick if I could. A cult is any church that teaches or preaches salvation by any other way than grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a cult. If a church preaches that you get to heaven through good works, they're a cult. If a church preaches that you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and He did the work on the cross, they're not a cult uh, by, the, by the pure definition of what a cult is. And so, But there will nonetheless be those that will label you and call you that. There will be those out there that uh, uh, try to oppose you and they'll, they'll look at you as though you're some kind of a religious kook or you're some kind of a, a fuddy-duddy. Uh, they'll call you names. They'll tell you you're a hypocrite. And, and, and listen, if you, there's some hypocrisy in you, you need to try to get it out. Uh, but uh, uh, they're, they're going to oppose you along the way. And I just have to say, look them in the eye and say, I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can either join me or, or, or you're against me. But I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please the Lord. Don't, don't let them get to you. I, got a, I love the way Zerubbabel and Joshua handled it. They looked at these folks who were lying to them and they said, 
you're not for us. Get lost. Get lost. We're here to build the temple. The king, uh, king Cyrus has told us we can do this, and so you need to get out of here. Well, these men hired counselors and, and worked to connive against them, and when that didn't work, they uh, ratcheted it up, and they uh, they then made lies up against this man who is, uh, these men rather, who were trying to do something great by rebuilding their temple. Letter B, we see the accusation. What did they do? What did they do? They drafted a letter to send back to Babylon, to send back to the uh, the headquarters there of Persia, to accuse them and even throw some of their past history in their face to try to stop the work. Look at verse eleven. This says, "This is the copy of the letter that they sent unto him, even unto Artaxerxes the king, thy servants, the men on this side the river, and at such a time be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from uh, from thee to us." are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and, and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof, and joined the foundations. Be it known now unto the king that if this city be builded and the walls set up against uh, again, then uh, will they uh, not pay toll, tribute, and custom, and so thou shalt endamage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we have maintenance from the king's palace, and it was not meet for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore have we sent and certified uh, the king uh, that such may be made in the book of the record of thy fathers. So shalt thou find in the book of the record and know that this city is a rebellious city and hurtful unto kings and provinces and uh, that they have moved sedition within the same of old time for which cause was the city destroyed. We certify the king that if this city be builded again, and the walls thereof set up by this mean thou shalt have no portion on this side of uh, this side of the river so these guys saw they couldn't stop the building of the temple the building of the walls so what did they do they took to writing a letter and accusing them of having bad motives saying look if they get these walls built and this temple built they're not going to send toll and tribute back to you they're going to dishonor you and on top of that uh, just look at their history this is a people this is a people who in the past. This is a people who uh, uh, used to rule over the world, and this is a people who uh, uh, even uh, owned other chunks of land and had people paying tribute to them, and, and you need to stop this from happening, or this is going to damage the coffins, the money coffins of the king. And Artaxerxes, who had replaced Cyrus at this point in the story, he, he uh, took the letter seriously, and he dug up the past and found sure enough that some of these things had been true, and he stopped the construction of the temple. He stopped it from happening, and the whole project was put on hold. The foundation had been laid, but they were not allowed to go any further with it. Uh, so uh, we had Cyrus, and if you're looking for a timeline here, Cyrus the first he ruled, or, or, or Cyrus uh, there of Persia, he ruled from 559 B.C. down through 529 B.C. And then from 529 B.C. to 521 B.C., you have, obviously you count backwards down to the birth of Christ, you had Artaxerxes, and then from 521 B.C. to 486 B.C., you have uh, King Darius that ruled. Again, Cyrus was 559 to 529. Uh, uh, Artaxerxes would have been 529 to 521. Darius 521 to 486 if you're taking notes. And I can share that with you after the service if you'd like. But during that short reign of Artaxerxes, the whole thing was put on hold. Number four, we see the construction of the temple. The construction of the temple. Let me give you an A, B, and a C under this, and then we're going to really get into the meat of the sermon here. Letter A, we see the foundation laid. The foundation laid. Turn over with me to Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 10. The Bible says there, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in the apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sing together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, uh, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of, of the house of, of the Lord was laid, and many of the priests and Levites and chiefs 
of the fathers uh, who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their uh, eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud with joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. What a sight that must have been to behold. They got the foundation down. The concrete slab, uh, if you would, was down. And they were ready to begin uh, the next phase. And once the foundation of this new temple had been laid, the young men who did not know the Solomon's temple, the first temple, uh, they shouted with great joy as they were excited to see a temple, in uh, uh, at least phase one of the temple being built. The old men who had remembered the original temple, they wept. They wept. And I've got to say here is that, uh, and this is just my opinion, I think they were way over dramatic to weep. Way over dramatic. You say, well, why is that? Listen, just the foundation was down. They had no idea what that temple was going to look like when it was completed. Um, and uh, they, uh, they wept. The other thing I'd say is they were being a little pessimistic. Listen, it's one thing to look back on the old days and reminisce. And I think this is a, a great point uh, to hammer home here. And there's nothing wrong with looking back on the old days of reminiscing. Listen, this church has a rich history. 37 years has been here now, I believe it is. Praise the Lord for the history of this church. Some of you, were, uh, many of you were saved here and discipled here. And you, you saw, uh, uh, you, you, you remember the days where this church really took off under Pastor Brown and grew and, and the CBI building was filling up and, and on to here. And, and I gotta say that looking back in the rear view menu for a, uh, rear view mirror rather, for a short period of time and dwelling on the good old days, there's nothing wrong with that. But don't let that blind you to what's coming down the road with the future of this church. And don't sit on the pew and go back back when, uh, back when I was a youngster. No, listen, get involved. Be involved now. And, and the, there's much more to be done. There's much more work to be done. And so uh, don't let that happen. So the foundation was laid under Cyrus in 536. Uh, the, the, the letter B is the framework was completed. The framework completed. That was stage two. Look with me at Ezra chapter 5 and verse numbers, verses number, uh, verse numbers 1 and 2. This evening, the Bible says, Then the prophets Haggai, uh, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, and these are the authors of uh, Haggai and Zechariah, you might have guessed, uh, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shealtiel there, and Jeshua, the son of uh, Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. So the the foundation had been laid. Uh, they had been the government had come in and forced them to stop. And so for quite a while there, sixteen years to be exact, they laid down their tools, and nothing else happened. Finally, one day, Haggai and Zechariah get up and they say, "Listen, uh, we've gotten uh, uh, a message from the Lord. You guys need to get back to work. You need to start building that temple." And the government had not endorsed it, but they just picked up their tools and they just went to work. And sure enough, there were, uh, there were outside people that came and said, hey, what are you doing? And they said, listen, King Cyrus gave us permission to do this way back when, and, and we're just doing what we were told we could do. And uh, the, the, the accusers, I guess, were no longer around. So a letter was written to the king, and you can find that letter here in, uh, in uh, Ezra chapter number 5. And, and, and Darius uh, took the letter and read it. Darius had, had become the new king. And he went back and looked, and sure enough, Cyrus had given them permission. And so the work went on, and, and you had the framework or the rest of it built up. Look down with me at verse number uh, six, or rather chapter six, and verse number fourteen. Exodus chapter, Ezra chapter six, and verse number fourteen. The Bible says, "And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prophesied through the prophecy, the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, and they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes." King of Persia. And there's uh, some debate out there, and I've, I've read and read and read on it, and if you want to know my opinion on it, I, I don't really know that I have one, but there's some arguing about there, out there whether or not Darius and Artaxerxes were two different people or the same person. I think I probably fall, fall in line that Artaxerxes was just another name or title for Darius there, uh, but if you believe different, then have at it. I'm not going to argue with you over it there. But nonetheless, uh, uh, Darius and uh, oversaw and allowed the framework to be completed. Letter C, we see the formalities began. The formalities began. Look at Ezra chapter 6 
in verse number 16 with me. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the children uh, of the captivity kept the dedication of the house of God with joy and offered at the dedication of this house of God in a hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the services for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. So uh, the, the the festivities begin, the formalities begin. Uh, I find it fascinating. You go back to our study we did on Sunday morning, sometime back, about the sacrifices out of Leviticus. How important it is. The very very first sacrifice they did once the temple was completed was the sin offering. As after 70 years, they needed to have this sin offering done to have their sins atoned. But uh, they had all of that put back in place, and now they have a functioning uh, religion again uh, with a temple where God can uh, dwell uh, amongst them uh, in, a, in a physical location, and they can begin to serve. So that gets us through kind of, kind of some of the history of the book. Let's get into some of the spiritual application tonight. Number five, we see the character of Ezra. The character of Ezra. Many people have, have mistakenly thought that Ezra, Nehemiah built the wall, Ezra built the, the temple. That's not accurate. Ezra came on the scene after the temple had already been completed and built. And he was part of that third wave of Jews coming home to Judah. And when he arrived, the temple had already been built. Look with me at Ezra chapter 7 and verse number 10. And uh, if you mark in your Bible, underline in your Bible, I would really recommend you underline this verse. If there's a verse that's practical to take out of the book for you today to go home and start living and practicing, Ezra 7.10 might be uh, as concise and uh, to the point as there is in the entire book. It says, Therefore Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now, I could spend an hour just in this verse. There's a lot here to dissect and apply to our lives today. But in my Bible, I have this verse underlined, and then I have the word prepared circled. Letter A, we see his preparation. His preparation. You know why your Bible reading and prayer time can get old and crusty and, and routine and mundane, all those things? Because you don't actually prepare to walk with God. You, you wake up, you wipe the sleepies out of your eye, you get your caffeine in the form of coffee in your cup, and you sit down, and you, you're half asleep, and, and you're, you're, you're trying to drink the coffee and get woke up, and, and you're reading the Bible, and you do that day after day after day. Let me say that if you're doing that, thank you. Thank you. The Lord appreciates that. But what happens is it becomes mundane. Why? Because you didn't actually prepare your heart to seek the Lord. There's got to be a, a, a mental taking the time to say, Lord, I'm going to open your Word today, and I'm going to read it, but I don't just want to... Read three chapters, close and move on. Or read a chapter and close and move on. I want to get something from your book that I can leave here and do. I can do. I can put into practice. Something I work very hard at in doing as your preacher, as your pastor, is not just to get up and give you Bible theory. I want to give you something practical you can go home and put into practice. And I want to do that every sermon I preach. Every lesson I teach, I don't just want this to be the uh, the, the, the uh, deeper life Baptist church. Sometimes we'll, get, we'll dig deep in the Bible and we'll see neat things together. But listen, I would rather not go so deep and have you leave with something practical. Now, if that's good enough for you and you're sitting in the pew listening to a sermon, that's good enough for you and you read your Bible and you pray. Open your Bible and say, Lord, I'm not closing this book until you give me something I can leave and put into practice in my life. If you're doing that 365 days a year, well, you're going to find yourself moving right along in the Christian life. What did Ezra do here? He prepared his heart to seek the Lord and then to do the book. Ezra would have been part of the tribe of Levi. He would have been one of the priests. Letter B, we see his purpose. His purpose. Look down with me to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 27. Ezra 7 verse 27, the Bible says, uh, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. To beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, I, I wrote a couple of words down here below, purpose. I wrote down the word physical. Physical. 
God had put inside the heart of a secular king to pure, to, to make, to, to beautify or to make pretty the outside. I do believe Darius was saved, by the way. I think Daniel probably led Darius to the Lord. And again, go back to Daniel and read the accounts there. But you remember when Daniel was thrown in the lines, then that was under Darius's rule. And I do believe that Darius was probably a saved man. And even reading the way uh, 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 that, that Darius speaks in this chapter, he doesn't refer to God as a God. He refers to Him as the God. And so Darius was most likely, yes, not a Jew, but saved. And again, another example of someone who was saved in the Old Testament that wasn't a Jew. But he was all about beautifying the appearance of the house of the Lord. Quick, uh, A quick insert here, if I could. We have some ladies that show up once a week, and they help beautify the house of the Lord. Uh, on Thursdays, we have a team of ladies that show up, and they vacuum, and they mop, and they sweep, and they uh, they polish the pews, and they wipe down the piano. We don't put any chemicals on the piano, because you can't do that to one of these, amen? But they wipe down the piano, and uh, they, they scrub bathrooms, and they make sure the nursery's clean. And, and I'm not going to uh, say who they are. I don't think they want that recognition. Uh, they, don't, they don't do it for the recognition. They do it because they want the house of the Lord beautified. We need more help with that. We need more help. If you have time during the week to come in and help us clean, uh, let me know. Let Pastor Dave know, and, and we can get you set up to help with that. But uh, let me just make another application here, if I could, is that if you're saved, you are the house of the Lord. You are the temple of the Lord. First Corinthians tells us that our bodies are temples that the Holy Spirit dwells in. I have another word written down here below physical, under this point. I have the word purity written down. Purity. Remember I opened the sermon by giving you those six words to write down. God is sovereign. And then God expects purity. God expects purity. Listen, how pure is your personal temple? You're allowing sin to contaminate you. And the Holy Spirit has to put up with that as He lives inside of you. Let us see. We see His protection. His protection. Look down with me at Ezra chapter. We're not going to read it. Let me just rather tell you. Uh, Artaxerxes wrote, again, Artaxerxes or, or Darius, wrote a letter to put in the hand of Ezra, Ezra 7, verses 11 through 26, if you want to read it later yourself. And the letter's actually there in your Bible uh, that, that was put into Ezra's hand. And so as he's leaving the Persian Empire and traveling to uh, Jerusalem, if anybody wanted to stop him or question him, he had the ruler of the civilized world. He had a letter from him with his stamp at the bottom saying, no, 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 you're to give Ezra full passage and full cooperation. And so he was protected as he traveled. Letter D, we see his passage. His passage. Look down with me at Ezra chapter 8 and verse number 21. It says there, Then I, Ezra, proclaimed a a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for our substance. They had come to a river, and they weren't really sure how to cross it, and there were some enemies around them, and he did not, read on down, he did not want to inquire back of the king, and that there would be a delay, and there would be an embarrassment there. So instead of turning to the little K king, He turned to the big K king and he prayed. The Bible says they afflicted themselves through fasting. And that's really what fasting is. It's the going without food and it's afflicting your flesh to say, God, I I need to get your attention on a big matter here. Look down with me uh, there at verse 31 and 32 of Ezra 8. It says, Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go into Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. So God's hand was on them. While they had the protection of the little K king, they had protection of God Almighty on them as well. And God protected them and got them across that river and got them on into Jerusalem with no trouble. So we see the character of Ezra. He prepared. He had a purpose. That was to beautify both physically and uh, in impurity. We see his protection in his passage. Number six of the, uh, of the uh, Bible study tonight, we see the confession of sin. The confession of sin. Look down with me at Ezra chapter 9 and verse number 1. Oh boy, this is powerful right here. The Bible says, now when these things were done, the princes came 
to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yes, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in the trespass. And when I heard this thing, look at verse 3, And when I heard this thing, I rent my garments and my mantle, and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and sat down astound, astound, or astonished. Ezra gets into, from Babylon, gets into um, Jerusalem there. And he discovers that these Jews had come back and had settled and had gone out and had married all of the other people, all the idol-worshipping people around them. (laughs) And Ezra was many things. Ezra was upset. Ezra was disappointed. Can I name one that Ezra probably was that's not listed here? Frustrated. Now, let's stop and think this through. Judah, why were you carried into captivity? Two words. Idol worship. Idol worship. Remember last week how we looked at God's messengers? How they got up and their job was the same really as my job? To preach against giving your heart to covetousness? Giving your heart to idolatry? Making sure God's number one? These Jews, these Judeans, they come back and they're only there a few short years. They're only there about 20 years and what do they do? They go back to marrying people who who are participating in idol worship. Wrong marriages. Look down to verse number 5 of Isaiah, or rather of Ezra, chapter 9. The Bible says, And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness. And having ripped my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands in the Lord my God and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to Thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespass has grown up under the heavens. Why was Ezra taking this so hard? Ezra knew that these people could not properly worship God because of their bad marriages and the idolatry that had been brought in their home. The Jews' bloodline had been corrupted by bringing in these other women. And and on top of that, the the religiosity uh, difference and the headbutting that would take place in home if they tried to worship God the way that they had been commanded to do so. As a point of practicality here, and I'm going to harp on this as long as I'm the pastor of this church, to the young people that are here today and to those that are unmarried, regardless of your age, do not marry someone who is not a Christian. Do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. I'm going to tell you right now, I have seen more pain and hurt in the lives of people who marry wrong. Uh, they're, they're just stuck. They're stuck. They, can't, they don't know where to go to church. And so they don't go to church anywhere. And then Satan sifts them and beats on them and beats on them and beats on them. Don't just find someone who goes to church and is, is uh, or don't, 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 in, uh, uh, don't marry someone who goes to church occasionally. Don't marry someone who claims to be a Christian in name only. Find someone who's as passionate about Jesus Christ as you are. And these people married wrong and now Ezra is tearing his clothes. He's pulling the hair out of his head. I guess he didn't have a receding hairline or he wouldn't have done that, amen? He, he's pulling out his beard. He's laying before God and he's saying, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed. I would blush if I even lifted my face to look up at you. He's confessing his sin. I wrote this down in my notes. Ezra's sorrow sparked revival. Ezra's sorrow sparked revival. Let me show that to you. Number six, or, or the last point there, number seven rather. The cleansing of sin. The cleansing of sin. Look down with me in Ezra chapter 10 and verse number 1. I hope you're, you're hanging on this intently here. This is really good. Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, 
There assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children. For the people wept very sore. Now, this weeping wasn't taking place before Ezra arrived in town. But once the man of God responds this way, boy, the people fall in line and they weep as well. Look at verse 2. And uh, uh, that name, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of uh, Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. These people gather together in such great multitude. They're weeping with Ezra, and finally one of them comes and says, listen, let's do it this way. Let's make a covenant with God that we will send away our strange wives from us. Let me give you a couple thoughts on this, and and there's a lot of debate over this amongst people who know the book well. Um, And people will say, well, there's a double standard here. God's not for divorce, but he was for them sending away their wives. I don't think there's a double standard in Scripture at all. I just don't. And let me show you uh, quickly why. I know we're short on time, but quickly let me explain why. In the New Testament, the Bible is very clear that if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever and they don't want to reconcile with you, you're allowed to part ways. You're allowed to part ways. And so here I see it the same way. Uh, I do believe that these wives that they had married that worship strange gods, I do believe that if one of those wives had repented of their strange gods and had converted to Christianity, or I guess there would have been Judaism, that God was not going to make them kick them out. You say, do you have a biblical precedent for that? I do. I've got, I've got a couple of names. Rahab is an example. Rahab's an example. Rahab was not thrown out. She converted and she was in the lineage of Christ. Uh, how about, um, uh, uh, we looked at her a couple of weeks ago. How about Ruth? Ruth converted. And, and, and she was a Moabitess gal allowed to be part of the lineage of Christ and in there. So I don't think if these, these women had converted into believing in the one true God, that God would have made them send them away. But nonetheless, these men gathered together their wives that were idol worshipers, and they sent them home. They sent them home. And they purified themselves. Let me make a very strong application here, and I'll shut it down tonight. God wants you to have a pure heart on the deepest of levels. Listen, if God was going to make them terminate marriages over purity, how important do you think it is to God that you have a pure heart? You say, well, I've got a pure heart. I'm, I'm kind to people. And, and listen, sometimes I think there's a disconnect between what the pastor means and, and what you hear. I'm not just talking about you being nice to people at work or you being nice to your neighbors by... You know, uh, bringing them a housewarming gift or you know, baking them cookies. Listen, I'm talking about you being pure in the most inner parts that nobody knows about but you and God. That's what God desires, for you to be pure in the inner parts. Some of you here tonight, maybe you're, you're challenged by God allowing hurt in your life. Let me just remind you, God's sovereign. He's a sovereign God. He allowed the Israelites to be carried away. And He allowed them to come home. And God will allow things in your life, but it's always with a purpose to refine you and to make you better. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening.